Hello, and welcome to today's podcast. I am one of your hosts, Dave, and I am here with Emily, and we are talking to Jeff Barr, who probably needs no introduction to our audience. Very excited to, to, to be here with you. Um, even title, I mean, you're just like the, uh, the original developer <laughs> advocate, but now you are the VP of evangelism at AWS. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Super happy to be here, David Emily. Why don't we get started? I love hearing history. I, I, you know, I was not there for the beginning of AWS, although I feel like a lot of the audience, you know, was there for the beginning of the cloud. And so why don't you talk a little bit about when you came to Amazon, what Amazon was like, uh, you know, were there, where's the leadership principles the way they are today, um, you know, back when you started and what did the formation of developer advocacy look like? How did that whole idea come about? Sure. Wow. I think we just covered the entire hour there. So let's see. <laughs> Feel free to, to talk as much as you want. Yeah. <laughs> let's see. So, so before I came on board, Amazon had published our, their or our, I'm never quite sure how to refer to it, but let's say their first web service. And this was basically giving developers access to the Amazon product catalog. And it allowed developers to make really interesting queries and then get back a, an incredibly rich schema that described essentially what we call the, the detail page. So all the really interesting oh, wow. information yeah. on a product catalog. I had been doing consulting and web services and most of, if, if we go back to 2000, 2001, most of the web services of that era were, were not very, very compelling demos. They, they, would be, they would be okay for a technical person and they, they would say, wow, it's so amazingly cool that you can connect up over the internet and make a request and get data back. But you'd show that to a regular person or a VC or a business person and they would just say, wow, what, what's the big deal about the stock quote or the weather or the currency? So the, this, this catalog access and the, the, the shopping cart and the other features we added later, it, it was, to me, as soon as I saw it, I said, wow, this is a, a legitimate, actual, useful web service. And through, through sending in some customer feedback and getting invited to a developer conference and expressing my interest, I found myself on the Amazon Associates team just a few, a few months later after that service had been announced. And was there a, what did it look like? Oh gosh, I try. I go back to uh, what I was doing when Amazon came around in like '96 and '97, and I was coding uh, ASP web pages for a company called Micro Warehouse, uh, which was an online reseller too, and um, doing some com back and forth uh, on the back end. And so, I'm trying to remember if there was even the idea of community. Right. Like there was the idea of open source, but the community, um, you know, it was like, what is a developer community and how does that grow around the products? Was there a, you know, a, an Amazon developer community? Or was there these companies hitting an, an API? There, there certainly were communities, but they were very different back then. And that they were primarily meeting in person via user groups was the, what was the primary way that they would get together. And I have been a, and a, a former and attender and participant and helper in user groups since I was a teenager. And I, I've always, I, the, the thing I love about user groups is no one goes there because their manager said, I order you to attend a user group. People yeah. go, go out of their, their personal interest and their personal passion. And that, that really means that they self-select for, 
for being really interesting and, and really wanting to, to be there. So talk to me about how evangelism or advocacy started. I guess in, in the first days, we called it evangelism. You still use that title. Um, how, how did that come about? Like, what, what was the sort of need that brought that about? Okay, so for my entire career, I've basically been very deeply technical. I've got a computer science degree. I've, I've built and launched lots and lots of products. But I, I've often found myself in a situation where I was on the tech side, but I wasn't happy with, with the type or level of marketing that was being done for our products. And so I took it upon myself to, to be available to help out the marketing team, to, to attend conferences, to speak at, at talks. And so I, I've really evolved myself into being the bridge between the tech side and the marketing side with basically a, a foot on, on either one. Now, I, I think back to the, we, we had this first service and uh, about six months after I joined the company, one, one of the leaders came to me and her name was Sarah. And she said, Jeff, we've got this job here called Web Services Evangelist. And we've been trying really hard to fill this position from outside, but we have not found a qualified person. But we're looking at your background and what you're actually doing for this initial e-commerce service we think you're really already doing this job. Would, would you like this title of web services evangelist? And I, I looked at the position and I, I talked to my family because I knew there'd be a lot of travel involved. And I said, yeah, this looks awesome. I would love to do this. And then I, I took a very simple mission statement was, to, to me, it was understand what we have and then share it with developers all over the world. That was how I decided to go about doing my job. That's kind of amazing. So what were the services you covered first? Like what were the first, well, I'm assuming S3, EC2. Um, talk to me how you sort of, you know, spoke to communities about that. How did you distill the sort of technical information in interesting ways? What was it like? It, it was it was really fun. And the, the thing that I look back on is it wasn't clear that we were actually making history as we did it. Because yeah. each of these each of these events is is a nice interesting but not monumental step forward so b before we had even launched sqs or ec2 or s3 i i was responsible for the e-commerce service we had a service that was called the alexa web information service totally related to the alexa devices uh we, we had the fulfillment service we had a, a few other web services that that i was responsible for for evangelizing and interestingly enough, that was taking up my a lot of my time. I, I was I, I was going out and taking speaking engagements. I was um, I, I would speak anywhere that that I was invited. I was helping out on the forums, which were really our initial form of, of community, and we we still have those forums to this day. They're they're a little little bit decrepit, and it's like stepping back to the '90s sometimes when you go into those. It's form. kind of fun that when that happens, though, I'm like, oh, it's like time travel. It, it really is, and, and, and sometimes in a good way. So I was helping out on the forums, and I, I was doing whatever I could to help all these services to succeed. I was getting feedback from customers and, and bringing that onto teams. And then when, when Andy Jassy formed the AWS team, and I was lucky enough to be up the hallway from Andy, I was review, helping to review his narratives. I was one of a lot of people that were giving Andy feedback on his narratives. And I could see that we were about to build a lot of different services. And I could see that we were talking about storage and compute and database and networking. And I, I could see his headcount requests for all of the different services we're going to build. I didn't see anything that was really labeled marketing or developer relations. And I, 
I suddenly had this realization that it was going to be up to me because there wasn't going to be any more hiring in the, the short term to actually popularize these services. I remember writing a document and sharing with Andy that basically outlined what developer relations would be all about in, in terms of documentation and customer support and different aspects of evangelism and advocacy. And it did that in the, the very early days. Yeah. And then there was a, one of the proposals there was that we would have a blog and we had a ton of discussion around why we should have a blog and the, the myriad of just details and questions that you, you need to answer before you do something that's such a, a big, bold public statement. But I, I had to persevere quite a bit before we got that blog approved for, for that's incredible. experimentation. Yeah, it's this a little bit like you're sort of running a startup within a startup within a big company. Like you're just like, okay, I'm going to take this on. I'm going to own DevRel. Um, how did you originally define it for those early documents and early days? And how has it changed for you over the last however many years? It, it certainly does feel like a startup, but it, it feels like a startup that is succeeding really well, but still retaining the best elements of being a yeah. startup where where you can have fresh ideas, you can propose them, you can get the green light, you can go ahead and, and do them w without a whole lot of overhead and bureaucracy. I, I've, I've been at several startups over the years where things launched with great aspirations, but pretty quickly it went to steady state to then, hmm, my colleagues are disappearing and not being replaced. So hmm, I'm the last one here, time to get another job. <laughs> but AWS has been the opposite where it, it just get, keeps growing and growing and getting just more interesting over time. But it, it was always about just making sure that developers knew what we had to offer. And then not, not just from the, here's the service, here's all the APIs, but this is what it is and this is what it does. And this is actually what you can do with it. And this is what you can potentially use to benefit yourself or, or your, your organization. So it was always, to me, a matter of, going a little bit beyond just the tech details to putting it in a somewhat bigger picture. That makes sense. And how, like, were there as many conferences as there are now in those days? What did they, were they smaller, bigger? What did the sort of ecosystem look like for people? There in were a lot of smaller conferences. There, there was nothing on the scale of, let's say, a reInvent. But, but I was fairly famous for a while for pretty much taking any invitation anywhere in the world and just, <laughs> I would... I would go and I would work with whatever our local office was or our local team to, to figure out a way to, um, to, to make good use out of that trip. For a while, I had this really fun thing where I had a public wiki. And the, I, before I would take a trip to any particular city, I would simply put a, I'd create a new page on the wiki and say, I'm going to be in this city from this day to this day. Here's my open calendar. If you would like to meet with me, just put your contact information on the calendar and I'll be more than happy to, to do that for you. And it, it turned out to be this uh, it effectively almost an, an open source approach to scheduling. And, it, and until I was asked to take it down for security reasons, because it gave too many details about <laughs> my location. Yeah, I was just going to say, I'm like, I think that sounds really cool. But I, as a woman, I would just never do that because <laughs> it's, it's actually dangerous. <laughs> you know, I, I had one of our early colleagues and he saw me do it. He's like, Jeff, it's been great to know you. But after you do this, I'm not sure I'm ever going to see you again. And so he, he was. Yeah. Well, it's a different. It's a different time too. Like one of the things you had me thinking about is the time frame. Like I'm trying to put the time frame of this. I remember like feed burner was a thing like yeah. with blogs. And I used to have a feed <laughs> of blog entries into my email. And that is kind of how I would start the day out. Mm -hmm. And so the idea, 
you know, in developer relations across the entire industry, when you say, and it's the same with marketing now too, when you say influencer, people get what that word is, but that wasn't really a word other than like, you know, Hollywood influencers or, or political influencers, exactly. right? It wasn't really, yeah, it wasn't really a thing in, in um, when you're creating software. And it, and it so, was a little bit suspect too. Like there, there was, for, for a while, if you were to claim that you were from a tech company, but you were part of the marketing team, you, you lose half your credibility right away. Very, very, you have to lead with your dev credentials and your tech background and say, I've stepped out of my comfort zone and I'm doing this other thing, but it's not really my job just just to pretend like you're still a dev sometimes. Right. And that's what I love is like when you are a really good coder, you're the, almost the opposite of an influencer. You feel like you can't write good code at all. It's There's this humbleness to it, you know, because it, it does over time coding for so long, you just, you look back of what you've created and it's never good enough. You know, it's like, that's the true artistry of it. You know, you feel like it's never the, the art is never done. And so calling yourself an influencer was a was a red light too. It was like, you know, oh, I'm a I'm a developer influencer. It's like, are you? Are you the marketing head of marketing yeah. at a company? It, it, it's, it's, a, it's a tag like you never can call yourself a guru or a genius or an expert. <laughs> that you can never right. give yourself that label. If, if other people do, you accept it. You, you while well, you deny it, you accept it with great humility and you, you do your best to then live up to it. But you you can't put that label on on yourself and be taken seriously. Right. Thought leader. Oh. <laughs> you make me itchy, those terms. Like whenever someone, I'm just like, ah, no. I oh, I, did we forget visionary? <laughs> so, so social media, how did that change advocacy during this time, right? So we, you've got the blog out there and then we start to see this transition. Like it's, it's forums and blog, right? It's a very 90s. And then suddenly there's stuff like Stack Overflow. I remember Stack Overflow like 2008. I was like, this is amazing. Um, you know, it's just the ability to connect with other developers everywhere. And that wiki style was around there in documentation. But then having, I don't remember when Git first started coming, like the entire idea of an open source uh, way to share code. And how did all of that affect what you were doing and making decisions in the direction around that? So the the interesting thing is I, I've always been an early adopter of these sites because I, I like to sign up and make sure I can get my preferred username. So I'll, I'll tend to sign up, get a little bit of experience with it, and then sometimes use it, sometimes not. Like I remember signing up really early for Twitter when it was somewhat different than the way it is now. And I, I signed up, I maybe used it a time or two didn't fully grasp the power that I had. And I, I'd have to go back and look at my early tweets, but it, it took me a while to figure out that it was actually a good way to spread the word for for what we were doing. And and also that was considered an acceptable use for it. It, it, it wasn't always clear at first how you use these tools and what the audience is going to think of the way that you actually put them to use. And each one of them really finds their place in the world only after some time. But But thinking back... The, the other so there was Twitter, uh, there there was Slashdot was definitely a really interesting place. Oh, yeah. to, to participate. Uh, Hacker News came along sometime around two thousand six, two thousand seven, and then each of these has a different community, a, a different kind of a rhythm to it, a different a, a different personality, effectively. And the, for example, I, I know that the AWS community on Reddit is very very different in what, what they'd like to hear about and how they respond to announcements versus the Hacker News community. The, the Hacker News community, you, you can be an individual developer working on this most amazing thing for five years and 
you you put it on Hacker News, it gets on the front page, and a bunch of people are like, oh yeah, I could have built one of those in a weekend, and then everybody else comes in with, yeah, I, I did, and here's here's the thing that I copied, and and oh by the way, here's seventeen alternatives that are, so it's not quite the supportive community, and you you have to have a fairly thick skin sometimes to post on Hacker News. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, How? I, no, I, I I sometimes think that all of the the people that were 14 years old and, and posting junk on Slashdot are now 30-something years old and posting junk on Hacker News. It, it kind of feels like the same the same basic kind of, I don't know, skepticism, disdain, <laughs> aggressive, whatever, uh, of, of certain kinds of environments and companies. Definitely, yeah. Now, like, you know, now we take for granted, we have an entire language around cloud and uh, so many of these concepts are the default now. What was it like explaining in those early days? Like, how did you even build a language around it? Like the jargon and everything. What were the challenges of that? So the interesting challenge to me is, and, and something that, that I sorely miss from in person is the ability to, before you actually start speaking, to figure out who you're speaking to and to get this little sense of, is this a, a really deeply technical audience? Are they more business focused? Are they startups? Are they enterprise? You can just tell from the from talking to folks for a few minutes and getting a sense. Are, are they are, are they wearing jeans and t-shirts? Are they a little bit better dressed? How are they behaving? Are they are, are they interacting a lot? Are they socially awkward? You can kind of tell from like what what kind of audience you might have, and then use that as a sense of well, how much explanation do I need to give? And do I need to go into a lot of detail? And then the the kind of events I've always liked the best are the scale where I can actually see the audience and at some point get some level of eye contact with everybody in the room and then be able to just say, are they following along? Do they get it? Are they perplexed? Are they engaged? Are they Are they bored? And then use that dynamically just to adjust what I'm saying. And if, if you see somebody looking a little bit confused, you can you can focus in and say, "Hey, I, I I see you're you're not following. Can I explain this in a different way for you?" And then one one thing I love about explaining is you have to iterate on it. You have to try a lot of different ways to explain something before before it makes sense to the audience and to you. And then I, I've been in situations where I've had to explain the same thing many times over the course of a couple of weeks, and then iterating on the explanation until you get you get to that right one so yep i've tried 15 of them in the last month now i've got the one that actually works really well with audiences this is such a good point and something i think about a lot with the virtual element and like with the sort of asterisks of yes the virtual element i think parts of it should stay i think it is more equitable there's absolutely an argument there but one of the difficult things as a speaker is I don't get to test things out. It's not that I can go to like a smaller conference or a meetup and see how ideas land or which jokes are funny. I just have to sit there in front of my video camera and chuckle at my own joke and pray <laughs> that it's actually yeah. funny. Like it's so difficult um, that you don't get those little test that, spots. That lack know? of a feedback loop is really dismaying. Yeah. And I still think there's room for a great startup that somehow captures the audience and brings the audience back to the speaker. And whether that's whether that's individually with just showing their attention levels or whether it shows some demographics or or somehow says this is what the audience individually and collectively thinks of you almost in real time so that you could use that as a 
as a gauge of just how well you were doing as a speaker. I, there, there's, I really believe there's, there's some kind of awesome product or service to be done in that space of bringing audiences into in, yeah. back to the speaker. The Lord. I mean, real time feedback sometimes, like if you're tanking, I mean, you just, I don't feel like, <laughs> I'm not sure I have the ego strength to actually turn that around mid talk. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. And one of the things I did, here's a little trick. I'll, I'll be vocally self-critical about this. So I had, this probably happens to you all too. I would say something and you'd be like, oh, that's pretty smart. And I can see that connecting. I'm surprised that came from me. <laughs> and, or, and a lot of that happened with the analyst briefings or one of the community podcasts. So when I, I used to say voice is the new HTML, which came out of a, a comparison I was giving a reporter where I was like, you know, you don't monetize HTML. It just becomes the communication vehicle for everything we do on the internet. It's the, it's the underlying pipe. And I'm like, that's what voice will be as how we communicate with the technology in their lives, right? And so I started, I was like, wow, I'm going to make that a thing. And then I put it in like slides. I started like tweeting it. And, and so it was, for me, it came out of the conversations. So that's why I just fell in love with podcasting was you'd hear somebody say something and I'm, you know what it is? It's a math. I don't know if you read Matthew McConaughey's book. Uh, I think it's called Green Lights. He talks about bumper stickers. Like he's very good at bumper stickers. It's an aphorism, mm -hmm. right? To be literary accurate, but it's like, you know, you know, life is, uh, you know, you know, you, you, you gotta be, you gotta say, I get Little to, slogans. don't say I have to, you know, like, the, like stuff like that. And to, and I think that's what a, a lot of advocacy is funneling it down to that single source of truth. Well, it's easy to write thousands and thousands of words to describe something. It's so, so yeah. hard to come yeah. up with, with a, a short enough phrase that fits on a bumper sticker or in a meme. Yeah. I, so I, we have tons more to talk about and we're already at the end of this episode. So why don't we close this one and then we're going to, we'll follow it up right in the, in the episode after this. Sounds great. All right. Thanks.